Ecclesiastes 3.1 says, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. We're in a series studying the book of Ecclesiastes. I want to invite you to grab the Bible, turn to the Old Testament, and lean in as we discover what God's Word says about godly living in 2024. It's good to see you. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter uh, 3. We're in a series on the book of Ecclesiastes, and uh, I'm going to summarize the basic life rule that Ecclesiastes is trying to teach us in the first couple chapters of the book. Kohelet is the name of the, is the Hebrew way of saying the preacher. And so I'm using that language, Kohelet, as the author of what's being said here. And if you sat Kohelet down right here and I could interview him, like I just interviewed Jared, if we could ask him the question, what, is, what, is, what are you trying to say? I think his answer after the first couple of chapters would be this. The projects we put our energy into rarely turn out how we want or expect. All of the energy and sweat and toil that we put into whatever projects that we have, that amount of energy, sweat, and toil is not what we get in return when they're finished. In fact, we expect it to be the case that we get all that, but it, it doesn't happen. And he calls this, in Hebrew, hevel. He calls it vanity, fleeting, meaningless. And uh, he covers all sorts of different subjects with this. He said, you want, you want to have some examples? Well, he, he starts out in talking about how uh, pleasures and comforts don't deliver. So in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 10, what, whatever my eyes desired, I didn't keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. My heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward or for all my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I expended in doing it, and behold, all of it was vanity. All the pleasure that I sought in all the different ways that you can imagine pleasure, all of it in the end was hevel. It took a lot of energy to do, and in the end, meh. The striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. It's a, but it's not just pleasure that he looks at when he talks about this. We, we, the, we, as we're picking out passages in the book of Ecclesiastes as we go along here. So we're covering every single passage in the book. But at the end of chapter 2, he tries to deal with the question, okay, maybe pleasure's not the thing that we should be after. Maybe changing the world should be what we do. You want to change the world? Yeah, I want to change the world. We should all change the world. If we change the world, then we'll get to the end and say, look at what we did. And we accomplished so much. If there's gain to be had under the sun, surely it's in that kind of thing. Ecclesiastes 2.18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. I'm going to change the world. And then, of course, you get to the point where you're old enough that you're like, I'm going to hand it off. And then the next person who comes along is what? Like, seriously, if you have, if you have a particular political view, just think about the last number of years for you. You're like, 
yeah, Bush is the best. And then all those people are like, no, Obama's undone everything Bush did. But all the people who were into Obama were like, yeah, Obama, he's changing the world. And then Trump comes along, he undoes everything that Obama does. And then, yeah, Trump. And then the other people are, no, Trump. And then all of a sudden, Biden, he undoes it. Change the world, undo. Change the world, undo. Change the world, undo. Welcome to the life of heaven. Yet he'll be master of all which I toiled for and use my wisdom under the sun. <laughs> it's hell. So it doesn't matter if you're trying to seek pleasure. It doesn't matter if you're trying to make a name for yourself and be successful. It's, it doesn't matter what you're after. Whatever it is that the project you're putting your energy into, it will rarely turn out how you want or expect. Talked to a few people in the recent couple weeks about this, this uh, series, and they've been like, this is really depressing, man. <laughs> and I was like, well, it, but it's not. Because li listen, there's an upside. It's realistic, and there's an upside. So I want to talk about the upside. We're going to have to get into the downside again, but I want to emphasize the upside today in this passage in Ecclesiastes 3. We're going to go from one, verse 1 to verse 14. And in it, I, I'm going to try ask and answer the question, how do we live in a world of this kind of futility? How should a Christian person then live knowing that most of the things that we're doing under the sun on this side of eternity will probably not turn out like we want them. So here's, I'm gonna bro I've broken the passage down into three parts. One, uh, it describes our experience, and second, our frustration, and third, our response. Our experience, our frustration, and our response. So here's the first of those, our experience in verses one to eight uh, of Ecclesiastes Chapter one, oh, sorry, chapter three. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. To everything turn. You guys know the birds? Okay, sometimes I just, I'm really old, right? 51 and I, I wasn't around when that was written, but that's, that, this is where they got it from. For everything there is a season. Th this word here, actually probably better translated in some of the other translations, an appointed time. Uh, the reason I say that is because the word means that, the word means that uh, God is selecting a time that you and I don't have control over. It, it is an, an, an appointed time. I'm happy with season. It's a season, but you're not the one who gets to choose the season. God, get, God gets to choose the season for, for everything. He's going to give you a list in the next couple of seconds here of uh, what we call a 14 merisms. A merism is a statement where you, you talk about uh, one side of a thing and then the other side of the thing and mean everything in, in the middle, right? So it's light and it's dark and everything in the middle. Morning and evening and everything in the middle. Alpha and omega and everything in the middle. 
So he's going to give you 14 merisms that are coupled together in what we call couplets. So seven couplets of merisms. If you know anything about Hebrew and the way the Hebrews wrote, seven was the number of perfection. And there's a reason he does that. He's, he's like, I am going to describe everything you're going to experience in this world in the most complete possible way that I can by talking about this extreme and that extreme. And by it, I mean all of the stuff. I mean everything. There is an appointed time and a time for every matter under heaven. So we're talking about on this side of eternity. What should you expect to happen in your life? Uh, this is beautiful, by the way. It's one of the most beautiful. People actually often have this at funerals. I've, I've heard it in lots and lots of public settings before, usually used out of context. But one of, one of the things I want you to hear as we're going through this is it sounds like the waves when you're, when you're reading it. It's, there's an ebb and a flow to it. And that's the whole idea. He's saying there's this and then there's that. And then there's this and then there's that. And he's trying to get you the idea that there are these opposites that you will experience in life. There's a time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. Like I said, you, you don't choose those times, yeah? God did not come to you before you were born and say, well, are you good with like July, Jeff? I mean, is that, a, is that a time you'd like to be born? No, of course, you're, you're born oftentimes when no one expected it. My wife... <laughs> When our first child, Ethan, came along, we were living in uh, Auckland, New Zealand, and um, he was what they call breech. For those of you who don't know what that means, he was upside down. So he was like, I'm not coming out the right way. I'm disobeying you and everyone else, which he's done ever since. <laughs> so they said, we're going to have to schedule a cesarean section, right? You cut the stomach of my wife open and pull him out. And it's going to be scheduled on this particular day. Great. All right, uh, he did not like that date, I guess. I, I don't, the Lord did not like that date because a couple of uh, weeks prior, I'm, I'm, I'm sleeping soundly and at three in the morning, I wake up and the entire bed is wet. And the first thing I thought was, I'm gonna have to apologize to my wife. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And you, I woke up and I was like, this hasn't happened in a long time. And then I kind of got my senses, and I noticed that she was standing on the side of the bed out of the, and I was like, and then I said, what, what did you do? <laughs> did you drink too much? She said, no, my water broke. And, you know, in my haze, that started to connect the dots. And I was like, oh my gosh. And you know all those stupid, I never thought, I always watched those movies before where the guy goes running around and he's like throwing things in. And I'm like, give me a break, dude. It's not like that. No, it, it was like that. Uh, we were not prepared. I grabbed everything and I shoved it in the thing and I ran out so and I threw it in the car and she wasn't with me and then I had to run back in. What are you waiting for? And I grabbed her and put her in the car. I drove actually to the hospital, which normally was about a 20-minute drive. I got there in about 10 to 11. Like It was 3 in the morning. I was driving so fast through, through Auckland. I get to the hospital. It's early, early in the morning. They put her in the gown and the little buggy and they take her off and I... My son Ethan is, was born just at five something in the, in the morning. It was one of the greatest days of my life. 
But that suddenness, that unexpectedness, is a great illustration of how, how in control that we are of most of the things that happen to us in our lives. And that's what he's trying to get across here. There is a time to be born, and God picks it. There is also a time to die, and you don't pick it. My, my mom, she, she passed away by, by actually uh, fainting on her way back from the bathroom, and she hit her corner of her head on the dresser, the corner of the dresser. This is the head on the corner of the dresser, and her brain bled out over the next two weeks. Um, after everything was said and done and the funeral had happened, uh, my dad was divvying up some of the different pieces that they had for her. And I, I remember he gave me her Bible, which was so important to me. And I opened her Bible up. There's all sorts of papers in it, you know. My mom was one of these people who kept notes and also kept everything else in that Bible, right? And it, in one of the pages was a list of what she was going to buy on Tuesday at the grocery store. I still have this piece of paper. My mom's writing, and I couldn't get over while I was sitting there that she had all these plans. Simple plans of what she was gonna do in the next couple of days and had no idea that she was going to walk from the bathroom back to her bed, faint in between, and die. I sat across uh, just a couple of months ago when I was back in British Columbia, I, I sat across a dear brother of mine who was an elder of the church I, I was in there, who was one of the healthiest guys I'd ever known, and I sat across him as they found out that he had some terrible cancer, and he was basically going to die within the months. I've, I've not had many opportunities to sit across the table from a man and look into the eyes of him who knows that his days are literally numbered. He was just healthy days before, right? One of the hardest things I've ever seen in my entire life was my neighbor across the street from my house in British Columbia. And one morning they found their daughter uh, who had frozen to death on their front porch. She'd overdosed and she had frozen to death on the front porch. I watched from the window as this man disintegrated onto the ground in front of the ambulances as they told him that your daughter probably is not going to live. I, talked, I had talked to her like the day or two before I drove into There's a time to be born. And there is a time to die. And you and I don't have any control over them at all. We don't choose when it happens. It happens to us. It is a time appointed for us. Time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill. A time to heal. A time to break down. And a time to build up. A time to weep. And a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. See, weeping and mourning and laughing and dancing. When I came back from uh, my, I, I went to a, a Cape, what they call it, Cape Mary Bible School in Austria for three months when I was in college. And I had just started dating my girlfriend, my wife now, just before I left. 
I went to Austria, traveled around for a while. Remember calling her on the phone on uh, Easter Sunday saying, hey, I'm here. I love you. And I remember her saying, thank you. I was like, what? It's uh, probably not a good sign. And I said, what, thank you? And then all of a sudden she started to tell me, I feel in my favorite line. I tell people this all the time. She hates it when I tell this story. But uh, I, she, she said, I just need some distance. And I was like, yeah, well, I mean, you'd go to India, and that would be a little bit further away, I guess. But from, I'm in Austria, and you're in Seattle. What are you talking about, distance? She says, well, I meant emotional distance. Fine. She dumped me. I was sad for, very sad, but we kept, I kept corresponding with her by airmail at those times, because I'm old, right? So airmail. And um, I told her when I was going to be back on the day I was gonna be back, and I flew back, and I arrived at the Seattle International Airport, and I remember getting off the plane, and I had no idea at all whether or not she was gonna be there, whether or not the dumping was a permanent thing, whatever. I had just written my heart out on, on, on airmail stuff, and who knows? She wrote back, she was being sweet, but I was like, is this sweet, like, I love you and not thanks, or like, what, what is it? I remember walking down the jetway. I came out. And I saw my, this was back when you could come to the gate. They, I saw my family there. They were like, yay. They had actually brought out uh, tambourines and weird things to hit gongs. Welcome home, Jeff. And at the end of the line was Jeannie wearing a, I could tell you exactly what she was wearing. Because as soon as my eyes got to her, I was like, well. And that, and that began probably the next best five days of my life with her. And I was on cloud nine every single moment of the next several days. I, I, I was so overwhelmed with joy. It was a time to dance. It's time to laugh. And there's a time to mourn. And weep. I came out, my, I parked my car just the other day outside of, a, outside of a, a volleyball tournament. Well, my son parked it, actually, and we were inside, and we came back outside after the volleyball tournament. The car had been parked on the road with all the other cars, and the side of my car was missing. Apparently, someone decided to take it with them. Not complex overstatement, but there were massive scratches all down. In fact, there was a section that it would look like somebody had taken a saw and just cut it open and peeled it back so you could look right through the car. And I was like, what happened? Uh, police came, we hit and run. Somebody got a license plate. They said, do you want to press charges? Yeah, right? What are you talking about? Yeah. So if somebody here, <laughs> you're in trouble. I... You've had this sort of thing happen to you. You didn't expect it at all. You walk out and all of a sudden, uh, there it is. And you're like, oh. You get the phone call that somebody in your family is sick. A family member tells you, hey, mom's in the hospital. She fell. You don't even know what to do with that information. There is a, a deep grieving and mourning that goes on. And you will experience this in life. You will. You will also dance and laugh, but you will weep and mourn. It was a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. There's a whole debate about what this means. <laughs> uh, some people think it's a financial thing. They used, used to use stones to count how many sheep they had. 
So casting away means you have fewer and collecting them means you have more. Other people say, no, no, it's a military idea because what you, they used to do is if you went through a property and you wanted to ruin the farmland of the people you just conquered, you take stones and throw it into their fields, right? So they can't, they can't till the soil. Others argue pretty strongly uh, that it's probably a, re- as a sexual reference, which is, I, I don't know, you want to come cast away some stones with that? Like, that's what the way they're talking about it. But whatever, you can see the opposites, cast away and gather. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep, a time to cast away, a time to tear, a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. Probably another reference to mourning. It's a time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What you need to know is it's not saying there's a time you're going to have to go to war. And there's going to be a time that you have to hate. What it's saying is this is what you will experience in the fallen world. If you want a description of what life is actually like, there it is. Every last one of these will be things that happen to you. We can't control when we experience them. And we can't control the fact that we will experience them. God has established moments for all of this and everything in between under heaven. Do you guys know the, there's a name of this book that was out, Oprah made it a big deal a number of years ago. I watched a lot of Oprah, so I know. Uh, I'm kidding, I don't watch a lot of Oprah. Um, so I was, it's called The Secret. The book's called The Secret. I may have made reference to it before. The, see, here's the secret story, okay? That if you want anything in the, at all, in the, like you want a new car, or if you want to have a plane, or if you want to, I don't know, that girl or that boy... You have to speak it into existence. You speak it out into the universe. In the morning, you stand in front of a mirror and you say, you are confident and you are powerful and you are successful and you are beautiful. And the belief is that all of those things that you, that you speak out, right, will end up attracting those things to you, okay? Uh, Christians in the prosperity movement do basically the same thing. They call it the law of attraction, uh, some, some people who are critical call it the name it and claim it or blab it and grab it kind of a, a, approach to things. But it's, they call it, it's word faith. In other words, since God created the worlds and everything happened within obe- uh, to obedience to his word, since we're the children of God, then everything we speak will happen in, in obedience to our word. So, you know, I decree and declare that I will have a Lamborghini. And I say it every morning, and then eventually I'll get a Lamborghini. What's really interesting about the whole, that whole approach is it's really not new. It's, it is a newfangled approach. Uh, it, it is a newfangled uh, approach that is derived largely from what uh, witch doctors did. I mean, that's all it is. It's kind of animism, paganism that says, look, if you come to the witch doctor and you give me some money, I'll give you a tool to be able to make it so that you can have your very thing. Or the person who comes to the tarot card reading says, tell me the future so I can control it. Because if there's one thing that's consistent across all human cultures, it's that you and I want to control the future. 
In fact, we're desperate to do it. Like I said last week, the suburbs exist because we want to control the future. If I can have just the right lawn and just the right car and just the right house and separate myself from all of the dangers and have insurances for everything, I can control it. And a passage like this is such an affront. It's like, no, you can't. No, you can't. Faithful Christians uh, laugh often at such approaches, right? Oh, you're going to read, you're going to just speak out something and just come back. Come on, man, that's ridiculous. We can't control the future or the world around us. We know that life has its ups and downs. Right? Uh, see, I kind of think we don't think that. <laughs> Uh, the reason I, I think that we don't think that is, well, um, I had a friend, I think I might have shared this before. I was a student at Dallas Theological Seminary. My professor was praying at the beginning of the class, and he asked, was there a prayer request in the room? And everybody said, my aunt's foot and my, you know, my rent and my, all these things, which are legitimate reasons to pray. But the guy next to me was a Russian guy who had lived through some of the most horrendous <laughs> circumstances that I had ever heard of. And he was sitting there and he started to grin, like listening to people complain about their toenails. And so we prayed, and at the end of the prayer, he just sat there and shook his head. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, oh, you Americans, life surprises you. And I've remembered that line ever since. What, life surprises you? Yeah, We think that the way life ought to work is that everything should be, well, controllable, but if, and if controllable, then we can actually end up fashioning things just for the positives. There is a time to dance. I mean, not mourn or weep. We, we want the positive, gainful side of all of these comparisons. And our whole lives are given over to, I want this one. And then we're massively surprised when God does not provide for us the positive side completely. What are you doing, Lord? What? Seriously, what are you saying? What do you mean, what are you doing, Lord? The Lord's like, um, Ecclesiastes 3. And we're like, no, that's not the way it's supposed to work. The way it's supposed to work is all the good stuff. I blabbed it, man. I need to grab it. Or I did all the good things or I lived the right way or whatever. And I need to now receive the benefit of all that kind, all that kind of thing. My, honestly, my, my son, when he first started playing baseball, there was a little guy on his team, Michael. And uh, Michael, uh, every time he got up to bat, he, you know, he sometimes hit it and he'd get first base or second base. And he was so happy. And then the other times he would get up and he would hit the ball to first base. The first base would pick it up and put step on the bag. And Michael, no joke, this little guy, he would run straight through first base, right to the edge of the forest, and stand there and cry. And I remember sitting there, he did this every time he got out. And I remember saying to my wife, I don't know if baseball's for him. Because baseball is a game of failure, that's what it is. If you go into baseball thinking that you're gonna somehow succeed all the time, you're in for a rude awakening because the nature of the game is you will fail. The best players hit three out of 10. 
Some of us approach life like we're shocked that there's going to be mourning. Overwhelmed with the idea that God wouldn't just give us all the things all the time. No, that's, that's not how it works. It's a time to laugh and a time to dance and a time to weep and a time to mourn and a time to be born and a time to die. Look, here's the cold truth about this life. It is a crazy roller coaster that will both make you laugh in delight and make you want to throw up. And we aren't in control of when the joy or the nausea sets in. And I find that frustrating. I find it hard to live in a world like that. I feel like it's futility to live in a world like that. If that's the way it's going to be, I should just kind of pack it in. So you see our situation here, but then he moves to describe the actual frustration. So I just said, I'm frustrated. He says, yeah, yeah, you should be frustrated. Let me show you exactly why it is that you should be frustrated. What is causing the frustration in your heart? He says, what gain has the worker from his toil? And the answer is uh, zero. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. This is a very kind translation uh, that tries not to uh, use the words the way they probably were intended. The book of Ecclesiastes, this word here, business, uh, is actually most of the time used in the sense of burden. It's not a happy thing when he says this business. He's talking, I have seen the burden, the unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Some translations use the word afflicted with. It's a burden that we are afflicted with. What, What are we talking about? The burden that we are afflicted with. Well, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Or as some translations say, it it has made everything fit beautifully in its time. Like all of the stuff, the happy, the joy, the sorrows, all of the opposites, every one of them has an appointed time in your life from God and he knows exactly how they're going to fit together in your life. But you don't. Uh, he has put, also he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. See, you and I, we're like, yeah, I know that there's an eternity. And I know that somehow this all fits beautifully. And I know God's got that view of it. But how? Why why can't I know? I I can't find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. If I only had the opportunity to see the design, right? The blueprints for my life. Let me have a look at them for just one moment. So then I know how this particular thing is fitting into the overall and I'll be at peace. And not have this horrible sorrow and frustration constantly. Honestly, it is very much 
when, when I read this, I thought, oh man, he's talking about Ikea right here for me. And here's why. Um, if, I, if I go out and I get the Ikea set, right? Look, I know that there are instructions. I don't understand the instructions. I think there's somebody out there who does understand the instructions. Maybe the guy who wrote it. It's got that goofy guy who I just want to punch, you know, with his dumb face. And he's doing different things. And I don't know what he's doing. So usually I'm like, this can't be that hard. Throw the, those away, burn them. And so I'm sitting there, and I got, you know, a, a little screw for the splorg, and this other one, because that's what it's always named, right? The vorm. And, and then I've got another one, and I'm like, I'm looking at all the pieces, and I'm like, I have no idea how this is supposed to go together. I have no idea. Somebody does. I wish they would come and show me exactly how it goes together. But in this moment, I'm livid. You and I are in that situation. Look, the Lord has all the instructions. He has them. He's, he is fulfilling your life in such a way that he will bring it to completion according to his eternal good plan. But you don't know anything about how it fits. But it does. It fits beautifully. But you, you don't know. I don't know how it fits. And so we sit there cross-legged on the ground with the pieces in our hand saying, where does this go, God? Can I just get a peek? It's frustrating. So what do we do? By the way, there's a columnist in Florida a number of years ago who decided that he thought we should sue, you should be able to sue God. Um, he, no kidding. He, he, and here's, here's what he said. Uh, he, was, he said, you should be able to sue God for negligence. And here's why. He said, I'm not sure if he, God, or she is all that mindful of what goes on down here. An example, one of my first assignments as a newspaper reporter was to visit a church at Fort, in Fort Myers where at an Easter Sunday service, the roof caved in. Most of the congregation escaped serious injury, but the church was destroyed. The only thing left standing was a statue of Joseph, the Virgin Mary's husband. The preacher told me that he looked on the statue's survival as a sign of God's love. And had I not been a professional journalist, Observing the scene in an objective manner, I would have said, hold on, pal. A sign of God's love? It sounds like the old, he beats me because he loves me. Line of thought. It's, it's bogus. Because if God, in all his infinite wisdom, drums, drops a concrete roof on his true believers, but spares a bunch of modeling compound, it's time to question his priorities. If I have to be composed of plaster to gain the attention of the universe, something is bad, bad, wrong. Hey, priest, I get it. You're looking for a silver lining. It's a sign that the statue's still there. Yes, but what about all the dead people? Hey, man, how does this screw and this bolt fit into that? Because it doesn't, priest, doesn't.
Man, I, I, I gotta be honest, when I, when I read that, I actually can feel his point. Uh, we may not be so brash as to sue God, but we know his feeling. How do we explain how any of this fits beautifully into God's plan? And most importantly, how do we live not knowing? Kohelet turns there, right? At the end, this is the last part. This is his, the response that we're, suppo- we're supposed to have. All right. So I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good. This probably means to, to enjoy themselves as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. See, this is God's gift to man. So, finding happiness and enjoyment in the work itself that he gives us on a day-to-day basis in other words, it's supposed to be the focus that we have, not trying to figure out how all of it fits into some grand narrative, even though it does. Do you know the monks, uh, you, the monks lived an ascetic life. That's the language that we use to describe it. It means that they did without physical things. And they believe that physical things... <laughs> We're kind of the enemy of the non-physical things. Not every monk felt that way, but for the most part, that's really what they were driving at. There are sacred things that you do, and there are non-sacred things that you do. Sacred things usually involve prayer and meditation and Bible reading. And Most of us would say, look, we're not really into the monks. We live a different lives. And yet, I, I got to tell you, most Christian churches have carried that mentality along. They believe that there is a sacred realm and there's a secular realm. The sacred realm is church stuff. The, the gathering together, the singing of the songs, the raising of the hands, the taking of communion. These are all the things where God is. These are the things that we're supposed to focus on if we want to be spiritual people. The things we're not supposed to focus on are the stuff of this earth, or that's the language that used. And by that, we mean soccer, or we mean dance, or we mean all the other things that our lives are work, all those other things. See, there's sacred, and then there's secular, and you should invest all your time in, in the sacred. Here, here's the problem. <laughs> that's not what Kohelet says. Koel, it's basically saying, yeah, you know, you're not going to be able to figure out how everything fits beautifully in your life. You're going to be holding these pieces of this dumb puzzle, wanting to figure it out, but you can't. And it's going to drive you crazy and make you cynical and feel like you're constantly carrying a burden. So what you need to do is basically say, I know somewhere it fits beautifully, but in the meantime, I'm going to go play soccer. I'm going to take the work that the Lord has given me, the using of my hands, the, the relationships I develop there, the feeling of success when we make the sale, all of that. I'm going to soak those in because they're gifts from God. 
Not to be treated as the ultimate. They're not the ultimate. You're never going to get your full satisfaction out of the success you think you're going to get. But you'll get some. And that's a gift. I'll put it another way. There are two things that he is trying to get across. We need to, one, accept the ups and downs of life and accept the frustration of not knowing exactly how each moment fits into God's greater plan. And two, recognize and delight in every joy the Lord brings as a gift from him. Try to give you some images for that. Uh, I worked in a farming community for a while, and every time I drove to the church, which was 11 miles outside of town through a bunch of wheat fields, I would drive by a, a barbed wire fence, and behind it were a bunch of cows, and one of the cows, every single time I drove by, had his head stuck through the barbed wire, and he had scratches all up and down his neck, and he was trying to eat the grass that was just beyond his reach. He was obsessed with the grass. What I, what I always found shocking is there was so much grass behind him. <laughs> so much grass. And he had scrapes all up and down his neck because he was trying to reach this, this unreachable thing. And all you wanted to do is say to the cow, dude, turn around. You don't need to be, you don't need to be heard all the time. You're reaching for something you're never going to get anyway. Dude, you're striving after wind. Just turn around. God's giving you a lot of grass. You don't need to carry the massive burden trying to figure out why things are happening in your life. You don't have to. You know, that's God's work, right? Like, he's the only one who's qualified to do that. It's not something you can figure out anyway. He's the one who's building the Ikea thing. Why are you sitting there complaining about it? Why don't you just give him the pieces? Go play soccer. Go enjoy a cup of tea. Go, go hang out with some friends. I mean, you can sit there on the floor and shake your fist at him and say, how dare you organize it in such a way? It's not going cha to change the hevel on this side of eternity. You'll know in time, okay? You will. When you stand before him, he'll take his little blueprint, turn it around and say, hey, remember when you're sitting on the floor, you were right here. See that little bolt? It went in there. And now here's your beautiful splorg. It fits. It fits. I had a professor in seminary when he was teaching Ecclesiastes. He, he made this argument. What's the book advocating for? Man, enjoy yourself. I was like, that can't possibly be the case. And he said, no, no, seriously, here's your, here's your uh, homework assignment. I want you to go out and go to a movie. And I was like, you are the greatest teacher ever. And I didn't understand at the time, and now I, and now I do. His argument was basically, look, you could get a really big A, and you get a C, you could get whatever it is that you're going to get. Work hard. Enjoy the process of learning all of these things. It is a joy to study God's word. Also, see a movie. Also, look around you to the gifts that the Lord has given you because, guys, there are so many pieces of grass in your field. Your family is there. 
moments where you sit around the table with them and look at each other's eyes and remember that these are the people that God has given you? As you, as you put food in your mouth that you like, it tastes good. You have a bicycle, you, you get to ride it and the wind gets to blow through your hair and you get to see the countryside and smell the smells and enjoy it. And yes, your legs will burn, but you don't have to make them burn all the time. You can pull back, but the burning will bring kind of an, an elation afterwards. Those are all gifts. Those are all gifts from God. You drive in a well-made car. It doesn't rattle when you drive. It turns corners well. Don't you ever smile and think, wow, this is a really cool gift from God. You love to eat good steak and not broccoli, good steak. You love to go hiking in the meadows or on a mountaintop. And you get to see all the things around and stand on a cliff and look beyond and see the majesty of God's creation and say, oh God, you're magnificent. You get to commit yourself to work projects and work together with other people to actually see things done and see in the littlest way technology improve the life of other people around you or you're able to sit down and help that family member or that uh, parent figure out how it is that they can best move forward with their kids or sort out their things. What a beautiful gift from God. He doesn't need to include you in any of that, but he did. So that you could have the joy of experiencing solutions to problems. It's sit in the sun watching baseball. And even though your team's losing, you can say, it's a lovely day for baseball. You say at the end, yeah, but okay, I'm still frustrated about why God has to do it this way. Well, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people will fear before him, that they'll revere him, that they'll say, you're wiser than we are. You're more organized than we are. You know more than we are. When you see the, the, the diagram at the end of time, you're going to be, well, wow, you are really creative. But in the meantime, you don't. You don't need to freak out and try to pick up things that are not yours to pick up. Job spent most of his life trying to figure out why all this stuff happened to him. And at the end of a whole bunch of questions that God asks him, Job says, I, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Who is this that raises questions about my sovereign plan? You asked that, Lord? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand. And they were things too wonderful for me, which I did not, I did not know. It occurs to me that most of us are actually trying to pick up logs and carry them around that we cannot carry. And we're exhausted because we have these massive burdens of trying to figure out where it goes and how it's going to work. And what the book of Ecclesiastes is doing is inviting you to say, you don't, you don't have to carry that. God knows where it goes. You can get up off the floor and you can live. 
our weakness in understanding God's ways is meant to move us to worship. Let God be God. Let us enjoy the gifts. We pray for us, Lord, I'm, I'm deeply thankful for the book of Ecclesiastes and this countercultural, almost counter-church-cultural way of viewing the world. We are sometimes so adept at pointing out all the errors of uh, fo focusing too much on the delights before us. And they indeed, Father, they can lead us into idolatry. They can become things we love too much. And then we expect them to deliver things they can't. But Lord, the solution is not to abandon them. The solution is to look to you, to recognize that you've, we live in this fallen world and we'll experience all sorts of stuff, but only you can make sense of it. And so Lord, we, we, I almost wanna physically with my hands just say to you, Lord, you can have, you can have it. You can have all the things I carry, all of the burdens and questions of why it is that this has happened and where it's going and when we're gonna get there, Lord, and you can have it. It's yours. I'm gonna go get some dinner. So I thank you for dinner. I thank you for the, the joys. Give us freedom today in Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org. Tune in again next week for another edition of the Harvest Bible Chapel podcast.